Let's back up. Boy, that was weird, wasn't it? Today's the 28th, so here's the proverb of the day, verse 25. The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Good one. They're all good ones. I love the book of Proverbs. So you've heard of urban legends before. I'm sure you have. Um, Maybe you believe some and you don't know that they're urban legends. An urban legend is a myth or it's folklore. Um, Sometimes there's a thread of truth to them. And um, and then they, they, they get told and retold so many times over time that they can change. Something that was once true becomes a fabrication. And, and they come in all kinds of different forms. Well, so pictures can become urban legends. You may have seen this picture of a shark about to have lunch on a guy descending from a ladder in a... Um, uh, that's a bad day for that dude. That circulated all over the internet a few years back. And um, it's just a terrible moment. It's completely fabricated. That never happened. Um, I mean, how would the... Sh- okay, I don't want to get into it, but, but there it is. There is some truth to that. There are sharks and there are helicopters, but this scene ever never happened. That's not true. It's an urban legend. Here's a picture of a moose 50 feet up a telephone pole. Leave that one up there for a minute. <laughs> and um, it's pretty good climbing moose, you can see, and jumping, you know, and it's... Um, but this actually happened. This is true. This is true. This moose was on the ground, and the, the linemen were actually laying cables for several miles, and they lay the cable down low, and then they have this big machine that's got a lot of hydraulic power, and they start reeling it in from sometimes over a course of a mile. This moose had its antlers tangled up in the wire, and as the wire was raised, up went the moose. By the time they found the moose hanging up there, um, he was still alive and having a tough day. And um, but by the time it came down, it um, it, it it was well, it actually was partially raptured there for a while, but it didn't make it. So um, they had to get him down, and he didn't survive the ordeal. I don't know what happened there, but that's that's actually true. Here's another one: cow tipping is where you sneak up on an unsuspecting cow and push it over. Heard of that? Cow tipping. And. Um, you know, a zoologist at the University of British Columbia did some calculations and concluded that to tip a cow over would require 3,000 newtons of force. To you and me, that's 670 pounds of force placed on it. And that means it basically would take 10 average people to tip over a cow out in the pasture. It's not really true. In fact, if the, all the cow did was stabilize its legs against being pushed over, it would need 14 people. That just tells you that cow tipping is actually an urban myth. Now, you may have somebody, somebody's told you they've done it before. They may have done it before, but I doubt whether they actually got the cow to go over. And that's unless the cow decides that it's spooked before you get to them, and then all kinds of mayhem um, in, their, in their area takes place. So cow tipping is an urban legend. Another claim that I heard about was that if you put an egg between two active cell phones, you could cook it. Urban legend, yes. You're getting smart. I can tell it's a myth. That's an urban legend. Here's my point. People can have all kinds of misperceptions about life. They do. They have all kinds. And if they can have misperceptions about life, they can absolutely have some misconceptions about what heaven will be. Uh, there's a poll I read about, and um, in the poll it said 40%, 40, 40% of people, this is from the United States, believe that heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. 47% more than that, say that it's just a concept. It's a state of being. It's, a, it's, it's, it's that. And of those who believe that it's a real place, 25% said, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're good. That's an urban myth, by the way. 
That's not how you get to heaven. 10% said that everyone goes to heaven, also an urban myth. Even among born-again believers, those are people who believe that, and, that if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that you'll get to heaven. Even among them, they have legends and myths. Here are some of the, the myths that born-again believers actually believe. When you die, you'll turn into an angel or the like. A lot, of, a lot of Christians believe that. Or that if loved ones die before you, they become your guardian angel. That's not, that's not scriptural. Or that when you die, and you'll go to heaven, and you'll sit on a cloud, and you'll play a harp forever. Not true. Or that, that before you can get to heaven, you go to some place where you kind of burn off your sins for a while, and then after you've done that, then they'll let you in. Also not scriptural. And all of these myths have a common source. They have a source, I guess you could say imagination, but um, you know, they all have, it's, it's, it's made up stuff. To get the real scoop, to get the truth about what heaven is like, you've got to go to the one who created it and who rules it and who sits on the throne in it, and, and you find that in God's word. So when we get into God's word, we're going to find that he reveals some things about heaven, which he says is the place he's prepared for us. Scripture tells us, he says, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. So today, we're going to read a little bit about the place that God has prepared. We've been in our series now. This is the 13th week um, we've been in this series about what happens after a Christian dies. We've mentioned, we've, we've spent a little bit of time talking about what happens to unbelievers when they die, but we're mostly focusing um, in this series about Christians. And there are going to be some things um, about, that, that may, some of these things that we're going to learn may surprise you. So today, we're going to talk about surprises about heaven. And in, in our series, we've already talked about some things that may be surprises to you. One being that, that heaven isn't one and done, okay? That there are different stages of heaven. We've talked about that. And scripture teaching on heaven and end times, talk, talking about when a Christian dies, we've learned so far that when we die, the, the, the death of a Christian, our spirit goes directly into the presence of the king, directly. Um, and at that point, we're awaiting bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection happens at the rapture of the church. And then sometime after that, Christians come back um, to the earth with Christ. And um, after that second coming, and uh, we, 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 for a season, will rule and reign with Christ on the earth in what's called the millennium. It's a thousand-year time period, and uh, the, the earth is restored. After a series of events that are all spelled out in Scripture, um, begins something that we would call maybe the, the eternal state. And that's what we're dealing with today in Revelation chapter 21. The rapture is now past at this point. The tribulation is past. The second coming is past. The millennium is past. And now we enter into this final eternal phase called where, which scripture describes as the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And that's where we are today um, in the first eight verses of Revelation 21, the eternal dwelling place of all of God's people. And now the first thing that may surprise you about this is that it's going to require some destruction. Okay, it's going to require some things to be destroyed. Revelation 21, verse 1. Here's John is the writer, and here's what he says. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So keep in mind where we are. It's been, we've, this is just following a thousand years of enjoying this restored earth and ruling with Christ. And after all that, Scripture teaches that the entire universe is destroyed. Gone. Back to chapter 20, the previous chapter, verse 11, um, says, Then I saw a great white throne, this is after the millennial kingdom, and him who sat on it, on it, whose face 
the earth and the heaven fled away, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This concept of the entire universe being destroyed or being done away with is repeated in many places throughout Scripture. Here's, here's, here are a couple. Um, Hebrews 1, verse 12 says about the earth, and this is talking about the earth and the heavens, like a cloak you will fold them up and they'll be changed. And then Jesus, here's a comment from Jesus, he says in Luke 21, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So when you put all this together and lots of other examples, it it means that this present earth, this world that we're in, is going to have an end. And it won't be an ecological crisis that brings it to an end. It's not going to be global warming that brings the earth to an end. It's going to be an eschatological crisis. It's going to be, be, and everything will be obliterated, just be gone. Now, um, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and so you just have to put up with me for a couple minutes as we get a little bit nerdy here, but... um, I love to take a look and listen to what science says and compare that to what the, the scriptures say because you have no idea how often something that's, that's proclaimed in science absolutely somehow verifies something that was, that was written down prophetically thousands of years ago. So um, you know, up until modern times, uh, as, as scientists have considered creation, um, they've, they've believed what we would just call this the steady state theory. There's, there's never been a beginning, there's never been an end, and um, so it's just this eternal state. Then science started to discover some things, lots of things, little things here and there. For example, one was this, that the sun is burning off its mass. It's kind of evaporating from the heat that it produces and the energy that it gives off. It's, in fact, it's quite a lot. It's 4,200,000 tons of mass get burned off of the sun every second. 4,200,000 tons. That's a lot. That's a great weight loss program. I get to get on that one. <laughs> and as it, so it's just losing this, this mass. So just, just from an obvious standpoint, that can't continue forever. Wouldn't you agree? Okay? And it hasn't been going on forever because it would have to be... Anyway, so, I mean, that's real simple. It's, it can't go on. That's, and that's also true about the universe. Lots of little indicators in science, and certainly this earth as well. The earth and the universe were designed by God to be temporary. They're going to have an end. Now, one of the questions that physicists ask um, is, is this, this question, what holds everything together? Why doesn't everything just kind of fly apart? And Paul gives a really interesting answer to that question in Colossians 1. I'm sure he didn't have a, a particle physics viewpoint about this, but nevertheless, here's what he says. Uh, verse 16, For by him, referencing Jesus, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. Continuing, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, Jesus is eternal, and in him all things consist. Now that word consist, you study it out, it literally means held tightly together. Held tightly. In him all things are held tightly together. Jesus made the cosmos. He's the the creator. He's the one who holds everything together. Now listen in Hebrews chapter 1. God having spoken in former times in fragmentary fashion to our forefathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by a son whom he appointed to be the heir of everything and through whom he made the universe. Did you know that Jesus was the creator? Okay. He is the reflection of God's glory 
and the exact likeness of his being. Now, there's a sermon right there that begs to be preached, but when you see Jesus, you are looking at God. He holds everything together by his powerful word. After he had provided a cleansing from sins, he sat down at the right hand of, his, of the highest majesty. And I just love watching how um, current science comes in alignment with God's word more than often. So here's, here's a comment from a guy named Lee Chestnut. He wrote a book called The Atom Speaks. And he's talking about this real problem in particle physics. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he's now drawn in the oxygen nucleus. Okay, basic chemistry, the oxygen. For here are eight positively charged protons. I'm sorry, this won't go on for too long if, if this is making your eyes run, but just pay, keep with me for a minute. Eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. Earlier physicists discovered that like charges of electricity repel each other. The entire history of electrical phenomena and electrical equipment has been built upon these principles known as Coulomb's law of electrostatic forces and the law of magnetism. So something is wrong. What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? Why, do all why don't all atoms fly apart? The short answer is Jesus Christ holds it together. So, you know, if you, if, if you go to a, a simple high school physics class, you'll learn about the laws of the universe and you'll get to eventually discuss something that was one time called the strong force. Now it's called the strong interaction. And it's the strongest of those basic forces. And it is significantly stronger than gravity and magnetism. It's, 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 it's what scientists deduce must exist because those positively charged protons should fly apart, but they don't. They stay together and they, they stay together in the center of every atom in your body. What's holding them together? Mathematically, scientists know something is doing that. And whatever it is, is powerful. They can't identify it. So they, they, they create this, in the, in the, there's a theory, and so, so they call it the strong interaction. Something holds everything together. Got to find out what it is. And until recently, um, they didn't have this more interesting name, but over the last, I said, you know, decade or two, um, you started hearing, if you read this, uh, this information, about something called the God particle. We've got to find out what it is that forces these protons to hang together. In 2012 at CERN, CERN is an acronym, it's from French, but it's basically this, this huge particle accelerator that sits on the border between France and, and um, Switzerland. And they observed something in their measurement. And what they do is they, they, they take particles and they accelerate them to as high a speed as they can, way, way high, not as fast as the speed of light, but way up, a significant fraction, and they smack them into each other. And when they crash into each other, they measure the reaction, and, uh, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a high amount of energy, and so they, 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 de they detect new particles there. And so in 2012, they observed something that they, and they named it, and they called it the Higgs boson. And... Um, um, it's up in the upper right-hand part of the chart. And so here are all of the particles now, and um, this is not a physics class, but you will see that now the Higgs boson is now part of the model, and, it's, it, it, and it helps them with some of the math. Um, and they think they saw it, and so what they quickly started doing was patting themselves on the back. They awarded each other the Nobel Prize, and they've declared, we have now identified the God particle, this thing that, that does this. Now... A rhetorical question back to Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Since everything is held together by Jesus, what if he lets go? 
What's going to happen if he decides to quit holding everything together? He will, by, by the way, one day do that. That is going to happen, and everything's going to collapse. And when that happens, everything's going to be destroyed. The more I, I read science, um, and I see it nibbling away at the edges of verifying scripture. Um, you maybe have heard of Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was a very, very smart guy, um, particle phys- nuclear physicist, um, particle physicist, theoretical physicist is probably the most accurate way to describe him. A very, very famous man. Uh, you probably, if you don't know who he is, you've probably seen a picture of him in a wheelchair where the computer speaks his voice for him. He died last um, March. He, was, he held the chair at Cambridge, the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics, which is a very prestigious position um, at Cambridge. Um, Sir Isaac Newton had that role at one point. So he's in a succession that includes... Anyway, so he makes this statement, and um, he does all this math with these measurements, and he makes this, this crazy statement, and he had a tendency to make crazy statements that other people verified over time. He says this, um, the God particle, the Higgs boson, may one day destroy the universe. It's, it's called the Higgs, Higgs boson doomed, doomsday, Okay. A, I, don't, I don't understand this. I'll just take this at face value, Mr. Hawking. He says, a quantum fluctuation creates a vacuum bubble that expands through space and wipes out everything. His description of how creation could end. Now, and scientists say, yeah, that's a realistic possibility. And they do their calculations and they say, it's not too likely. It probably won't happen for 10 to the 100th years. That's a, that's a, that's a 10 with 100 zeros after it, that many years. So you don't have to, you probably... Um, don't have to sell your property and you should keep paying your taxes, okay? So it's not too likely. But Joseph Lichen, this guy from Fermi, which is another accelerator lab, he makes this statement about the Higgs, um, Higgs boson doomsday scenario. On the other hand, it may already have happened and the bubble might be on its way here now. And you won't know because it's expanding at the speed of light, so there's not going to be any warning. Don't you just love... I just love when the scientists, okay, so you're not tracking with me. I'm going to move on. Um, <laughs> I just love reading that stuff and they're going, yeah, that's exactly what scripture said right along, Stephen Hawking. Anyway, so, okay, so go with me to 2 Peter 3. And I'm not going to go over this in a lot of detail, but there are some things here for us to see about the destruction of the universe. Verse 3 to 14. First of all, you must understand this. In the last days, mockers will come, indulging in their own lusts, will ridicule us by saying, what happened to his promised return? Referring to Jesus. Ever since our ancestors died and everything continues as it did from the beginning of creation, but they deliberately ignore the fact that long ago the heavens existed and the earth was formed by God's word out of water and with water, by which the world at that time was deluged with water and destroyed. So he's talking here about the flood. Verse seven. By the same word, The present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire and are being kept for the day when ungodly people will be judged and destroyed. Don't forget this fact, dear friends. With the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a single day. By the way, I'll just insert right now. I've heard people take that scripture and say, well, this could be how evolution is true, but God built the heavens and the earth in six days. That's a complete completely misappropriates the meaning and that takes the scripture out of context. Don't go there. There's, it's not a good argument. Um, six days means six days and this, doesn't, this has nothing to do with supporting evolution. Anyway, the, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some people understand slowness but is being patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish 
but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will disappear with a roaring sound. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done on it will be exposed. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, think of the kind of holy and godly people you ought to be as you look forward to and hasten the coming of the day of God, by which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. This sounds like a Higboson doomsday. Could be. I don't know. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to have him find you without spot or fault and at peace. I think it surprises people to know that the ultimate heaven will at some point, in advance of that, require the destruction of everything that exists now. So that's surprise number one. Surprise number two, heaven's going to be a fresh, new design. By the way, don't get all balled up in that. This is good news for you if you're a Christian, right? You can smile back at me. I'd feel better if you did. Anyway, okay, it shortens the sermons when you smile. Okay, so um, <laughs> heaven's going to be a fresh new design. It's going to be completely new and different. Um, Revelation 21, back to 1 through 5. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. I'm going to come back to that one. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we get a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and now let's drop down to verse 5. It's kind of a summary statement. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now this word new in this passage, this Greek word is kainos. It's not neos, which is the typical word meaning young. Um, this, this, this Greek word kainos means a whole new kind, something completely different from before. It's a fresh new design. This, isn't, this is not talking about an improved earth. That was during the millennium. It's not, not talking about a makeover of the earth, which that was with the millennium. It's not a renovation. This is different materials, different excuse me, atmosphere. And just as God made the first one, after he destroys the first one, he's going to make a new one. I heard a story about um, a fairly arrogant scientist who, um, you know, basically looked up to heaven and said, you know, God, um, you must feel a little outdated by now since we've now mastered uh, DNA and uh, chemistry and, and through our knowledge, we, you know, we can do pretty much do anything you can do, God. God said, sure, okay, let's see. Let's see what you got. So the scientist agreed to the challenge, and so God went first. He reached down and grabbed some dirt, and he, he blew into the dirt and off flew off this beautiful bird. And, and the scientist said, okay, um, thinking, okay, I, I, I've learned about soil manipulation and DNA. So he reached down to grab the dirt, and God says, wait a minute, not so fast, get your own dirt. <laughs> so all the elements that God made before are going to go away. The new earth, the new heaven, completely new. One of the um, truths about the universe, and it's commonly held by every discipline of science except one is the concept of entropy. The ent just basically, entropy is the concept that things go from order to chaos. When was the last time you cleaned your closet? You don't have to even show up in your house again. It'll be a mess in a month, won't it? Pretty much. Things go from order to chaos. Every discipline of science agrees. They look at the heavens and the earth and they say things that were orderly and they're kind of unraveling, they fall apart. Biology is the only discipline that thinks, thinks and believes that things go from chaos to order. Whole different sermon there. We've talked about that before. But, but 
But entropy basically says things lose their luster. They decay. They get old. They lose their shine. They fade. If, if you've ever had a new car, you know it's just a matter of time until you get the first ding. And then after that, they multiply. It's like they have little ding babies, whatever it is. <laughs> God is reminding us in this scripture that everything is just going to burn. That's helpful when you love cars. Just realize that someday it's just going to burn anyway. Guys are going, yeah, okay, not my car. Okay, well, everything on this earth was designed to be temporary, including your iPhone, by the way. Everything designed to be temporary. But the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem are this fresh new design, and they're designed to be eternal. Isaiah 66, 22 says, the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. And it might surprise you to know that this new creation, the new earth, the new heaven, um, it's also going to be physical. It's going to have physical with dimensions and substance. It's not going to be wispy, ethereal, um, where you run around like disembodied spirits forever. No, it has form and it has substance and size and texture and color. And we're going to talk about that next week, so I'm not going to spend time on that, but that's one of the surprises. Um, it requires the destruction of the present earth and heaven. It's going to be a fresh design. It has forms. Number four, it won't have an ocean. Verse one, also there was no more sea. I've been thinking probably along with many of you about the millennial reign that I get dibs on Maui, okay? <laughs> I've been thinking that. Maybe you've been thinking that too. You know, you can wish for Maui, but by the time we get to the new earth and new heaven, there will not be any Maui because there won't be any islands because there won't be any sea. That's bad news for, 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 for me and my Maui thing. I mean, the millennial earth will have a sea, and so it will have a Maui, and I get dibs, okay? I'm just saying. But until after, but, 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 but after that thousand years of renewal, that's all destroyed, and now we're talking about this whole new earth, and the, in the new one, there's not going to be any sea. You know, if I was God, I'm not sure I would do it quite that way. <laughs> I'd keep the sea because then you'd have beaches and, you know, the good stuff to go with that. If I was God, I'd just say, hey, no interstate freeways. If you don't have an interstate freeway, you can't have a traffic jam, you can't have rush hour, you know. But I'm not God, and I guess I'll figure that out later. So, but God says, no more sea. And, and when we read through scriptures about what heaven will be like, you know, it's mostly silent the scriptures are mostly silent about the features of the eternal state. You know, there's a lot of, 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 of you know, what's going to be there is not described except in negative terms. You know, verse 23, it says, you know, without jumping ahead, we'll discuss more next week, but it says, there's no sun and no moon. And by implication, it suggests that that means there's no stars. I don't know if that's true or not. In verse 1, there's no sea. It's telling us what's not there. I believe God is telling us that it's going to be completely different than what we've been experiencing up till now. You know, for example, our, our present world is a water-based world. Um, the new one is not going to be water-based. Our present earth is covered by two-thirds by water. There's water in the soil. Your blood is 90% water. Your skin is 65% water. Your brain and your heart are 73. Three-fourths of your brain and your heart are water. Just saying, you know. But the new earth, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, they're just, it's just not a water-based environment, and it's not going to operate on the same principles. I guess it's, it's, you could deduce that your glorified bodies will not demand water like your present one does. 
It's different. There's no sea. Now, before you get all bummed out, I didn't say there's no water. Um, just mentioned Revelation 22, 1. I saw a pure river of the water of life. So there's, there's water, but there's no sea and there's no oceans. Okay, a fifth thing that's going to surprise you, maybe. Heaven will have a capital city. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, we're going to discuss this city a little more depth next time, but I want to just touch briefly on it now. Um, it, we're not, at this point in Scripture, we're not given really any landmarks or characteristics, um, colors, things like that. There's more details in verse 9 through the rest. But this is the headquarters of heaven. This is the capital city of heaven. And New Jerusalem is different than any city you know. Here are a few differences. First off, it descends out of the, it, it descends out of the new heavens. That's a picture for me. I don't know what that does in your mind, but I don't know of any city that does that. It's a city on an immense scale. Um, if you read further on, you're going to find out that it's a cube, um, 12,000 furlongs on each side, translated to um, our money, is 1,500 miles. It's a cube, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. It's big. How big is that? It's a little bit smaller than the moon. Okay? Not a lot smaller, but it's, to give you a rough idea, it's pretty big. And number three, a surprise, it comes you know, down from the heavens and it, maybe it hovers over the earth or maybe it touches the earth, but it's in very close proximity to the earth one way or the other. Now, I'm thinking maybe some of you, and I've heard people ask me this question, are you suggesting, Terry, that this is literal? <laughs> Most, most commentators or many commentators would say, you can't, you can't be, this can't be taken to be a real city. They don't have an explanation for it, or if they do, it's just a guess. I take the scriptures to mean that, that we will have a literal millennium. We're going to have a literal coming of Christ, a literal thousand years on the earth, and a literal new heaven and a literal new earth. And notice it's called a holy city. That's hard to imagine for us, an entire city that's holy. It's not just a few people that are holy, not just a few churches that are holy. Every single occupant is holy. Okay, sixth thing that might surprise you. Six, it's going to feel completely unfamiliar to what you've experienced, our present experience. And it's interesting how John describes this um, um, in terms of what's not there. A list of negatives. Here they come. Verses 4 to 6. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. This is it. This is the consummation. When it's done, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And John writes this list in terms of negatives. Now, our tendency is to try to understand things within the context, context of our own experience, what we see and know. And we know about sorrow. We know about pain. 
We know about tears and death. None of those are going to be there. And John, John, bless his heart, he's trying to describe the indescribable. I hath not seen nor ear heard. I mean, there's just stuff here. It's how does he explain this? So you can only say, not that, not that, not that. God says, I'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no Kleenexes, I guess. I mean, no, no tears. No tears. That means dust can't blow in your eyes and make your eyes water, I guess. I don't know. No tears. I mean, I mean, there have been days in my life, and I'm sure you too, that have been days of tears, times and seasons of tears. We all shed tears. It's kind of a part of human existence, life on the earth. You know, men, tears of loneliness and misfortune or poverty or, you know, sympathy or persecution or regret. You know, regret. How many of us have ever looked back and said, you know, uh, what a dumb choice I made. That was, I, I shouldn't have done that. And there's not going to be any tears in heaven and no more death. You will never have to go to a funeral or a cemetery again. No death. 52 million people um, every year die on the earth. That's 147,000 plus per day. Today. Today, 147,000 people on the earth are going to die. No more death. There are, um, as of today, or as of Friday when I looked it up, there, were, there are three firms in the United States and one in Russia that um, offer cryonic freezing. Okay? That's, that just as you die, if you arrange for this in advance, just as you die, they will immerse your body in um, minus 320 degree liquid nitrogen and freeze you for about 200,000 bucks. You've got to pay in advance. And if you can't afford the 200,000, they'll just freeze just your head for 35,000. <laughs> the thought is that our technology today can't fix whatever it is that killed you. So we'll just freeze you and we'll keep you on ice. And when the cure comes, we'll thaw you out and you can go on living. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sad. I mean, there was four companies in the United States and there was five total in the world. Now there's only three because one of the American com companies literally went bankrupt. The freezers didn't keep going. And it's complicated to do this. You got to sign in advance. You got to, you know, there's all kinds of ethics involved um, that are questionable. You pay in advance, and the minute you die, they got to be ready to quickly freeze you. It's not like the okay. Anyway, it's a. I, I, I just say save the money and wait. Just save the money and wait. You're going to get a resurrected body later. It's free and it's going to be way better. No death. If there's no death, there won't be any life-threatening conditions. Think about that for a minute. If you can't die from something, there can't be a life threat, threat to you. You're never going to need a doctor because there are no diseases that can kill you, um, no surgeries, no dentists because there's no decay. I don't know if that means you don't have to brush your teeth or not, but you should. <laughs> so no hospitals, no death. The scripture also says there's going to be no sorrow. And that's a condition everybody can relate to. Here's David in Psalm 6. He's, he's in a time of trouble. He says, my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. 
Drop down to verse 6. I'm weary with my groaning. All, all night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. There's some sorrow. There's coming a time when you will not be able to relate to that thought. Because <laughs> there will be no sorrow at all. And no pain. I think some of us have a hard time imagining that because pain is an ongoing, present, continual part of our life. There's going to be no sorrow, no pain, no death. You know, the things that we face today are very, very temporary. Yeah, (laughs) praise God. And here's the final thing that I think will surprise um, some about heaven. Not everyone will be there. There's this myth, this urban myth in America. All you got to do to get to heaven is die. Live any way you want. Forget about God. Do your own thing. And when you die, we'll suddenly talk all about God and we'll talk about, all about heaven and all that stuff. That's a myth. It's a myth. Not everybody's going to be there. Verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I have to say, as a pastor, and I've been a pastor for 33 years, I don't think I've ever um, been a fire and brimstone preacher. Because I don't think wagging your finger at people and yelling, fire and brimstone, the world is coming to an end, changes any hearts. I think the only way that hearts get changed is by the Holy Spirit. But friends, this is in the Word of God. And if you believe or you know people who believe that all you have to do to get to heaven is die, tell them the truth. This is in the Scriptures. Skip ahead to verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, There shall be no night there. There's another something that's not going to be present. Nighttime. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. No lie is going to get... There's no way to con yourself, con your way into heaven. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this is a city of believers. It's a saved people only there. And people are described in Scripture, basically they belong into two groups. There's only two possibilities. You have the people who will be the occupants of heaven and people who are not the occupants of heaven. Scripture's teaching us right here that you either go to heaven or if you don't go to heaven, the alternative is this place called the lake of fire. So what's the requirement to be an occupant of heaven? What does it take to be one of those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Verse 7 tells us it's he who overcomes. What's that mean? It means that we overcome by having a saving faith in Jesus Christ and in that faith alone. You might say, well, how do you know that? Because the same John who wrote the Revelation also wrote 1 John, and he said this in in chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And you, you, know, you might, you might say, say you know, or have thought or know somebody who says, well, I, I believe I've always had some kind of faith. Read on the very next verse, verse 5. 
Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Faith in any other thing doesn't meet the condition. You've got to overcome the world, and you can only overcome by faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's it. Some people say, well, I've got my own beliefs, I, 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 and I hold them sincerely. My sincerity will get me in. People can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. You know, I read somewhere that there were going to be three surprises. Everybody will have three. Those surprises when you get to heaven, those that you expect will be there, and they're not. Those that you expect will not be there, and they are. And then when you have, um, when you own your own brokenness, the third surprise will be that you were there. And you get there by being an overcomer. If, if you're a child of God, the, the best for us is truly yet to come. No broken homes, no broken hearts, no rehab centers, no hell. The problems of this life won't even be remembered. Did you know that? The problems that you're facing today, you won't even remember them. Isaiah 65 says, this is the Lord talking, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. I'm grateful for that. So not everyone's going there. The rhetorical question, the question that, that a pastor has to ask here is, are you going to go there? Are you sure you're going there? Are you an overcomer? And if you read scriptures, you have to notice how frequently Bible, the scriptures, draw a line over and over and over again. These are the words of Jesus, and we're going to end here. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus again in Matthew 7. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. According to Jesus, few people are going to heaven. And the reason it's few is because only a few people will humble themselves enough to say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I cannot get there. I'm not good enough. I need Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the only way to overcome the world, by the power of Christ. Uh, let's pray. God, I, I, I pray that everybody that hears these words would have no surprises at the moment of, of death. I pray, God, that we'd be about your business. Lord, I pray that every heart here would be willing to take the narrow way. Yes, and it has its difficulties. It does, but it leads to life. So, Lord, I pray that if there's a single soul here or a handful of souls here that have not settled eternity with the one who will write their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, they would do it right now. There's no reason to wait. And it doesn't require anything on our part other than to confess our sins. And that doesn't mean we stand up and say, this is what I did last Thursday. It means we acknowledge to heaven, I'm broken and I sin. I can't be perfect. I can't be holy. I need you, Jesus. That's the confession. If that confession circulates in your heart, 
Scripture says, all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. So while we're praying and eyes are closed, I'd like to give opportunity for anyone to settle eternity right now. Your name can be written right now. I just will agree with you in prayer, and that's all. I'm not going to single anybody out. If you'd, let, if you'd let me pray with you that prayer discreetly and privately in this moment, would you just look up at me and maybe give me a hand wave so I know who I'm praying for? Is that why you're looking at me? God bless you both. Others, God bless you too. God bless you too. God bless you too. If I've missed you, wave your hand at me. Thank you, Lord, for matchless love, indescribable love, God. Thank you for mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord, that I can walk this earth imperfect and I sin and, Lord, I fall short of your glory. We heard that from the mouth of a little child with a memory verse this morning. I own that. We own that. So, Lord, for these souls that have heard the truth today and have responded to the encouragement by heaven, Lord, thank you. I ask God now for you to cover us, Lord, with forgiveness, to fill our, our lives and our, our days with the voice of your spirit, Lord. We might hear you and know you and follow you. Your, your scripture says, my sheep know my voice. They hear my voice and they know my voice. Lord, I pray that God, as you speak to us, especially those of us that are new in you today, that we would have an, a, a, a new sensitivity to the loving please and the loving, tender calling of our King. And I thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's uh, hang out here for just a moment. I'm going to have the prayer team come forward. And we're going to sing.